0: So good good morning ABC family so good to see that the break in the rain has brought you all here this morning uh, brace yourself sounds like more rain is coming later today uh, I want to I want to as we start I just want to remind you that this is culture conference week this Friday evening this Saturday morning we will have a culture conference and this year 's theme is it's political so the The heartbeat of the pastoral leadership of this church is we want you to think biblically about everything, and that includes politics. In other words, we want our understanding of God, of his character, of his word to inform the way we think about our political life, to inform how we vote, to inform how we talk about how we vote, and to inform our conversations with people who are on completely other sides of the spectrum from us. So that's why we are putting on our culture conference this coming weekend, and we encourage you to come. We think that you would do well to attend this. And today is an important day, that today is the final day for registration for this conference, and here's why, because we want to make sure that we have enough childcare workers. So if you'll just go on our website, abcchurch.org, scroll down on the main page, you'll see the advertisement for the culture conference and you'll see a little green button there saying register. We just simply register and that will make sure that you tell us, do you need childcare, if not? How many kids? What ages? That sort of thing. That'll help us supply enough childcare workers. And it will do another thing. It'll help us know how many people our food team is going to need to serve. We're going to serve you dinner. So it's five dollars. Just come with five dollars and enjoy a dinner together with the conference. And so please register. If you have not already, register today. Today is the final day to register for childcare especially. So we want, want you to do that. And today um, is the day, like Rebecca said, where we finish our preaching series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We just started it on New Year's Eve, and now we're bringing to a close. And and today we find and we heard, as we heard it read, that the preacher is going to give us some advice, which makes me ask you the question, can you think of a time where you receive some good advice in life, some good advice that you continue to live by today, When I think about that, I think of some things that my dad taught me when I was a young man. He taught me that life is hard, so you better learn how to control your emotions. Don't let your emotions control you. So he taught me that. He taught me that talk is cheap. I need to be a man of of my word. So if you're gonna talk about it, he said, Gerald, you better get ready to do it because talk is cheap. And he taught me that life is hard, so I better need to or I better get ready to work hard because that's what it's going to cost to get through life in this fallen world. He also taught me the very important truth of don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> Not very applicable around here, but if you know, you know. And that was just good advice. And these things are generally good advice. And here at the end of a book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is going to continue to give us good advice. If you were here with us last week, you heard Pastor Jeff tell us that acquiring a good name is like fine perfume. It's costly to acquire, but it has a lingering aroma. And the goal is that for the Christian, we want that aroma to be the aroma of Christ. And today we continue in chapter 11, chapter 12, of Ecclesiastes and we find that here in Ecclesiastes in answer to this ongoing question is there anything in life that has meaning right if, if you remember verse 2 of the chapter 1 the preacher starts out vanity of vanities says the preacher all is vanity and you heard him say the same words again today in chapter 12 he said in verse 8 vanity of vanities says the preacher All is vanity, and we see as we go through life on this earth under the sun, that life can appear meaningless. Way back early in the book, he said, you die, and in a few generations, you're forgotten. Doesn't matter what you did, nobody's gonna remember you. Or he says, you work hard to acquire knowledge. You work hard to acquire wisdom, and along with it, you get pain and vexation. That feels meaningless. Or maybe you work hard to acquire a business or an enterprise, and then you find all of a sudden your life gets really complicated, and then in the end you end up dying and leaving it to the next generation who didn't work for it anyway. And that feels meaningless. And so here at the end we find a simple summary of the entire book, and we find some clear words of advice from the preacher And he gives us three clear words. He gives us these three that are your outline. Remember, fear, and keep. And so those are the words that we're going to meditate on. And those are my goals to unpack those points for us this morning. And thank you for tuning in, our online community. We're really glad that you're here. And our earnest desire is that before long, you'll be back in the room here with us to enjoy some of this sweet, sweet corporate worship that is ours here at ABC Church. So grateful for Rebecca and her team for helping us through uh, singing lyrics of songs that help us in unison confess things that are true to God. So here at the end of Ecclesiastes, we, we remember chapter 11, verse 9. He says, follow your heart and your eyes. That sounds like our culture, right? You listen to the songs of the culture. It says, follow your heart. You read or watch some movies, you'll, you'll hear that same voice, follow your heart, but then he goes on and he says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Wait a minute, I don't hear that at the movie theater. I don't hear that in the songs. What do you mean? All of a sudden, he gets really serious on us. And then right in the final verse of the whole book, verse 14, he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here we're finding in this final section of Ecclesiastes, the idea that is bookended around these truths is that Judgment Day is coming. And on Judgment Day, every deed that you've ever done is going to be brought into judgment. And Judgment Day is a a day where there's a review. Maybe you're football fans or other sorts of fans where you're used to this instant replay idea, right? And they play the tape back and then forward and then they freeze the frame and you can make a judgment call at that time. Were both feet in before he went out of bounds? Or was his knee down before the ball came out? Because if it was, he's down. and If it wasn't, that's a fumble, right? And we, and we go through the, the freeze frame, we go backward, we go forward until it's real clear. Now apply your thinking to your life. Every deed you've done, every word you've spoken, every thought, even the secret thoughts that never turned into words or deeds, all of these will be reviewed under similar scrutiny by a holy God. And if the idea of that strikes fear in you, it should. That's a really scary idea, right? That's a very scary idea. That's a hint of what judgment day will look like. Judgment day is coming. That's what the preacher is telling us right here. And everything he's going to tell us in between is how we're to live in light of judgment day coming. And he gives us three words of advice. First word of advice is remember. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, "'Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth.'" In other words, remember him sooner rather than later. And he goes on and he gives a series of clauses or phrases to unpack the importance of when to do this. He says, "'Do it before the evil days come.'" Verse 2, "'Do it before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain.'" Verse 6, do it before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. In other words, do it before you die, because you don't know when that's going to happen. And you say, oh, thanks, Gerald, that's a real uplifting idea. But he's yeah, remember your creator before you die, because once you die, then comes the judgment. That is the testimony of God's word. Once you die, God will bring every deed into judgment. Therefore, he says, you need to remember your creator. And church, we need this word of remembering because we are people who are prone to forget. And it's not just a modern thing to be prone to forget. That was Israel's problem too. We hear this word out of the book of Deuteronomy from the mouth of Moses to the people right before they go into the promised land, he says in Deuteronomy 8:11, he says, "'Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. "'Beware, lest you say in your heart, "'My power and my might of my hand "'have given me this wealth. "'You shall remember the Lord your God, "'for it is he who gives you the power to give wealth.'" And this is a relevant word for us today, too, because we live in a society of affluence, We live in a first world country, and yeah, we have studied hard. We put in the work. We kept at it when other people quit. We did what other people were not willing to do. And yes, by some of that hard work, we have acquired some wealth, but we need the reminder to remember our creator because just like he told Israel, we only had power to acquire this wealth because God gave it to us. God is the one we need to remember. We need to remember that while we're still young and we need to remember it while we're strong because life is fleeting like a vanishing vapor. Just like a breath exhaled in the cold of a spring day. It, you see it for a moment and then it's gone. That's what this life under the sun is like. It's vanishing. It's vanity, he says. And that's the final word that we get here from directly from the mouth of Kohelet. After that, the voice changes. We hear somebody speaking now who speaks about the preacher in third person. So it's probably the author of the book, somebody who has collected Kohelet's teachings and proverbs and arranged them, and now he's speaking about them in third person. Verse 9, it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So now he's speaking of the method that preacher or Kohelet has done to Put this book together. He continues in verse 10 The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Here he's explaining to us that these words that have been collected were sought to be words of delight, and they are words of truth. And the preacher did this uprightly, he did it with integrity. Verse 11 The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. If you're not familiar with a goad, a goad is a a sharp-pointed stick used for driving of cattle. It's, It's to provide a temporary amount of discomfort to get them up and moving, but not so much as to do permanent damage. And that is exactly what the preacher has collected here in this book for us. These words are to be like goads. They're to provide some level of discomfort for us to get us awake, to get us up, to get us moving, but not to do permanent damage. In verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. He's saying, in other words, you can find a book out there that will make you stand firm wherever you are thinking. Like, whatever your opinion is on any given topic, you can find a book out there to help you stand there, to give you a reason to stand there. But he's saying, these words... These words are inspired. They're given by one shepherd. They're given by God himself. So you don't weigh all the sources with equal authority. These words, God's word, are the only ones with divine, holy authority. These words are binding on us. And he goes on and he says in verse 13, "'Fear God and keep his commandments.'" And the way I understand this is now the author is simply unpacking the command that Kohelet gave us when he said, remember your creator. What does it look like to remember your creator? You fear God and you keep his commandments. Let's take these one at a time. Second point is fear. We, we need to fear God. And then we ask, what is the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 9, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we are on a path where we're wanting to find wisdom, we find that we we can't do that unless we first fear the Lord. That's the point of beginning. You don't have fear of the Lord, you will never acquire wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And just like it sounds, the fear of the Lord contains an element of terror. I feel a little bit of terror when I think about this idea of judgment, when I think about the idea of every deed, thought, and word being carefully scrutinized by a holy God. And it's right for us to feel an element of terror at that truth. This is a goad designed to wake us up, a goad to get us moving. If you've listened to or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you heard Mr. Beaver talk about aslan in this way he says mr beaver says if there's anyone who can appear before aslan without their knees knocking they're either braver than most or else they're just silly and to this lucy said then he isn't safe safe said mr beaver who said anything about safe of course he isn't safe but he's good that's our god Aslan in that series represents the Most High God. He is not a safe God, but he is a good God. Our God is a God who is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That means he has power to create. We read in Genesis, right? And one of the first things God reveals about us right at the beginning of the word is that he is a God who has the power to speak, and out of nothing things come into existence. That is an uncommon kind of power. And it's right for us to have some level of terror and respect and awe and reverence at that kind of power. The testimony of the scriptures is also that God has the power to consume. We see this show up. The nation of Israel just got led out of Egypt by Moses through the book of Exodus, right? And they, get, they wander through the wilderness. They come to the Mount Sinai, and Moses prepares to go up and meet with God there on Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, verse 17 says this, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And he's not mad at this point. It's just his glory, his character, the excellence of his character The display of His glory is like a consuming fire. And then later, in in some of the minor prophets who speak to Judah before they get carried off into captivity, Zephaniah says this, speaking in a way that would call them to repentance, in a way to change their ways. He says this in chapter one, verses 17 and 18. He says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Our God is a consuming fire. That's not just an Old Testament idea either. We read in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. God is all-powerful. And we are right to understand his omnipotence, and to receive the knowledge of what that will mean for us with some level of fear, terror, trembling, awe, reverence, and respect. Those are all logical and understandable responses. And they're all part of what it means to have a fear of the Lord. But at some point, by God's grace, the fear of the Lord gives birth to faith. Personal trust. And when the fear of the Lord gives birth to faith, it gives birth to trust, terror gets removed. Terror gets removed because of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. At some point, we recognize that judgment day is coming and that Jesus has made perfect provision for us to stand in the midst of that judgment and receive God's favor rather than God's judgment. And that comes on the basis of faith. What does that look like then? What does it look like for a person who has a fear of the Lord that gives birth to faith? I think it looks like what it looked like in Isaiah's life. Isaiah caught a glimpse of the Lord, and he was undone. And it is recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, and it sounds like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here Isaiah catches a glimpse of of God, and there's an altar, there are amazing creatures that are worshiping God, and under the altar is a fire. And in the presence of God, Isaiah recognizes, compared to the holiness of the one true God, I'm sinful. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And you just get the sense that he just hits his face. And then we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for you notice that from the consuming fire in the presence of the Lord a coal was taken from under the altar and it touched his lips the very point that he recognized was sinful and he was cleansed by the Lord not by what he had done that's what happens when the fear of the Lord gives birth to faith you find that in the presence of God you can stand because your sin will be consumed by the fire of his presence not you But apart from God, you will be consumed from the fire of his presence. How does this result then? Once he recognizes that he's been forgiven by God himself. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. The one who is forgiven through faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ Is called on mission with God and says here I am send me I want to go I want to serve this God who has at great personal cost made made it so that I can stand in his presence rather than be consumed that's what it looks like when fear gives way to faith so what else does Kohelet have to tell us about the fear of the Lord here in the book of Ecclesiastes He tells us in chapter 3 that God's always working to lead us to fear him. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Everything God does endures forever. So God does stuff to intervene in our lives. Just like hell talks about these words being goads right to, to get us to get up to get awake to get moving God does stuff to intervene in our lives to cause us to fear him to, to cause us to recognize that we're powerless apart from him that compared to his holiness we are sinful and com- that in light of judgment day we do deserve to be judged God is always at work causing us to fear him He's at work showing us that the futility of self reliance. When we try to think that we could somehow earn God's favor by doing some works or somehow keeping his commands as a means of earning his favor, no, self reliance doesn't work. So God allows things in our life like financial pain. Maybe it's inflation, maybe it's because of medical issues. Maybe it's because of addictive spending. If you find yourself in financial pain, according to the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, it's because God has done it. He's allowed that financial pain in your life to wake you up, to show you that self-reliance is futile, and to show you that your way out or your way through this is by fearing God. Maybe for you it's not financial pain, but maybe it's relational pain. Maybe it's pain in a relationship caused by conflict. Maybe it's pain in a relationship caused by loss. Maybe it's your boss, a coworker, a family member. Whatever it is, God allows relational pain into our lives for the same reason, to cause us to fear God, to cause us to fear him. Or maybe it goes deeper than that for you. Maybe it goes to the core of your identity where you're wrestling with who am I? Can I ever be loved? Will I ever be accepted? Will God ever look at me and smile? Will his people ever accept me into their fellowship? According to Koheleth, God has done it to force us to fear him. So why does he do it? Why is he always willing to rearrange the circumstances of our life in order to cause us to fear him? It's precisely because of the truth in verse eight of Ecclesi- or chapter eight of Ecclesiastes is that those who fear God will do well." Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 and 13 say, "Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him." but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So those who fear God will be well in the day of judgment. Those who don't fear God will not be well. And we say, well, this sounds right, but it's not exactly what I see when I live my life here under the sun. I see lots of examples of evil people living long-fulfilling lives. I see lots of... Examples of people that don't fear God actually getting ahead financially in life and having a bigger house than I have and living a life that seemingly is more characterized by happiness than mine. And the, the explanation is, is that in the end, on judgment day, those who fear God will do well and those who don't fear God will not do well. This is exactly why Paul could tell the people in In the Roman church, don't get vengeance for yourself. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's why we can forgive people that wrong us. It's because as we take them off our hook, as we vow that we're not going to try to get even with them, we're putting them on God's hook who has promised that he will get even with them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1. He says... Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will get even with the people that need to be getting even with And contrary to this, those who fear God will do well. And we will do well precisely because we do fear God. And why is that the case? Why will it be okay with those of us who fear God? Because our fear gives birth to faith, and we have faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfectly obedient life as our substitute, and who laid that sinless life down on calvary's cross shedding his blood making perfect payment for our sins so that on the basis of faith his righteousness is imputed to us it is credited to our account so that when we who are in christ stand before god on judgment day god sees the perfection of the righteousness of the lord jesus christ because he has already made payment for our sins, which was transferred onto Jesus when he was on the cross. Which is why he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It will be well for those who fear God on judgment day, precisely because of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Which brings us to the second point of chapter thir- or verse 13. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. I don't think it's a mistake that they come in this order. The first command is fear God and allow your fear to turn into faith. And then he says, keep his commandments. And then we ask, do I have to keep all the commandments? Everything that I read in here? That seems like a lot. Is there anything that rises above the others? Well, let me read 1 John three twenty-three, which says this, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us see brothers and sisters we find that when we keep this commandment when we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ that everything else will fall into play because it's on the basis of faith in Christ that we are forgiven of our sins we will not be held accountable for those sins We're, we're forgiven on the basis of faith through grace and we are filled with divine power. We are given the Holy Spirit who empowers us with divine power to live a life of obedience. Listen to how Jesus uh, explains this in John 14 verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So if you love Jesus, we'll keep his commandments, and he, this commandment, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, we get forgiveness, and we get a filling of his Holy Spirit, and now we are divinely empowered for obedience. Listen to how Mikey Lynch talks about this in his book, The Good Life in the Last Days. He says, but the Christian gospel is not just about what we are freed from, as if we get saved from hell to then do whatever we please. That's cheap grace, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? He goes on and he says, now by the, spirit of the, or by the power of the Spirit, we are free to live lives that are pleasing to Him in line with who we were created and redeemed to be. So we go from not being able to obey to now being empowered by God himself to live a life of obedience. On the basis of faith, we are declared righteous instantaneously, and we spend the rest of our earthly life growing in our experience of righteousness day by day through the indwelling divine power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, obedience matters. And you might be saying, well, isn't obedience kind of an Old Testament sort of thing? Isn't God now much more concerned about his grace flowing to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's continue to listen to what Jesus has to say. He says in John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So our obedience in the power of the Spirit is the way that we declare our love for Jesus. And as we declare our love for Jesus through our obedience, the Father loves us and Jesus loves us and they come and they take up residence for us, in us. Church, if we want a deeper relationship with Jesus, all we have to do is seek to step into greater obedience of his commands in the power of his Spirit. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds like legalism, Gerald. I thought God was a God of love. And I will say, yes, he is a God of love. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You want to abide in the love of God? Keep his commandments. You want to have a growing love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Keep his commandments. It is not legalism. It's lordship. Legalism, I try in my own power to keep God's commandments to earn his favor. Lordship, because God's favor rests on me through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, I can keep his commandments. And as I do, I declare my love for him and I abide in his love. When we keep God's commands, we abide in his love. And you say, well, if I'm going to obey God's commands, doesn't that mean that I I need to truthfully fill out my tax forms yes we're commanded to be people of integrity does it mean I need to serve those who are down and out yes we're commanded to love the least of these does it mean I have to forgive everybody who has wronged me yes we are commanded to forgive one another because we have been forgiven does it mean I have to love my enemies yes we are commanded to love our enemies Does it mean I need to stop using drugs and alcohol to deal with the stresses of life, even the legal ones? Yes, we're commanded to do that. What does it mean that I need to stop all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage? Yes, we're commanded to do that. And now some of you are looking at me and saying, I'm not certain that I want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus if it's going to cost me all of that. You have anything else that might motivate me to throw my hat in with Jesus? To that, I will just keep reading out of John 15. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You want to experience more joy in life? You want to live a life that's characterized by joy? Obey Jesus in his strength, not yours. Is it going to cost you something? Absolutely. The net result is a life characterized and defined by joy. When we keep God's commands, we experience a life full of joy. So here we are at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and the word is, fear God, keep his commandments. And the flow of logic looks like this. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in your youth before you die, because when you die, you're going to be judged. Therefore, fear God. Allow your fear to turn into faith. Keep his commandments and his strength, not yours. That is what provides meaning in life. So the answer to the question, is there meaning to anything in life, is a resounding yes. Because judgment day is coming, everything means everything. Nothing is meaningless Every word, thought, and deed will be put under a microscope on the day of Jesus Christ, on the day of the Lord. And because that is the truth, everything means everything. So my question, congregation, is what advice do you need to hear from the preacher this morning? Do you need to remember your Creator? Do you need your remembrance of your Creator to teach you to fear Him? Do you need to allow your fear of God to turn into faith where you now have your terror replaced with favor because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you need to learn how to walk in increasing obedience by keeping his commands? Only the Holy Spirit can can show you what a faithful response to this word from the preacher is today. I'm guessing that there's some of you in the room who definitely need to turn the reign of your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You need to take him up on his offer to love you, to fold you into the family of God, and to give you divine power to overcome the, the sin, that the grip that sin has on you. Paul says the weapons of our warfare have divine power for the destruction of strongholds. If you are not in Christ, you don't have that divine power. Your sin will own you all the way up to judgment day. But if you're in Christ... You have divine power to walk in freedom. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name and we just invite you. Holy Spirit, come, fill this room, fill each one of us afresh. Show us what it looks like to hear these commands from the preacher, to remember you, to fear you, to keep your commands. Lord, only you have the right to apply this truth These truths to each one of your children, each man, each woman, each youth, right here in the room. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that. Bring to a point of conviction each one of us so that we know what the next faithful step looks like, the next step of obedience. Maybe it's the step of surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, admitting, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you paid my debt. I want to live for you. Come, forgive me and fill me with your spirit and lead me on. For others, it means we stop quenching the spirit. We need to stop grieving the spirit. We need to act on what has been revealed to us. We need to take that next step of obedience. So, Lord, empower us by your spirit for our good, for your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen.